0: On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you, and they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash roadie. That's betterhelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. at 2213 Gordon Road. I need a full assignment for a working residential fire. Mid 23 engine 21. 67. Full uh, so fire on the Bravo end of the gable.
1: Command yeah. medic 12. Let's go your rehab center.
0: If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other. They're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, stories from the road. Chief, thank you for uh, talking with me this morning. I appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your day to share this story. As we were planning this, uh, you shared with me a little bit about this particular incident, and I remember thinking, this is a story we have to tell. You know, I think when people uh, when people think about the fire service, they tend to think about fires and car crashes, EMS calls, and often the intricate rescue calls they are not really thought of. So I think this is really a good opportunity to share another view of the work that firefighters do every day. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to you and let you share your story.
1: Well, very good. Thanks for for having me. Um, Just to give you a little bit of my background, uh, I've been in the field, and I'll date myself a little bit. uh, My first entry into public safety was in uh, 1984. So I've been in the public safety field for a long time. And really got into the job kind of as a, not really a joke, but a little bit of fun. One of my good friends was a volunteer firefighter. And he told me that the ladies liked firefighters. So I thought, well, I'll give that a try. And then my first call, I was hooked on the adrenaline and the helping. uh, Because you you see people at their worst and it gives you that uh, moment or two that you have the opportunity to try to make that better. So I guess that's why I've, I've continued in the, in the business for 37, going on 38 years. Um, you know, there, there is a couple of incidents that really stick out, one that sticks out a little more than others. And uh, there actually are two incidents tied together a little bit, uh, separated by some time. I have to kind of set the stage of where this occurred to give you some some idea of the significance of it. In northeast Georgia, where Habersham County, Georgia, Raven County, Georgia, and South Carolina come together, there's a a large natural gorge. And sometimes it's been called the Grand Canyon of Georgia. And uh, it's about a mile long. and around 1,200 feet deep, and it's dated back, you know, there's history back to the 1800s of it being a huge tourist attraction, and so many people came to the area to see the waterfalls and hear the roar of the river, the Tallulah River, that actually carved that out. If you are as old as I am, you remember back in the 70s, Carl Wallenda, who was a tightrope walker, did a televised walk across Tallulah Gorge on a tightrope and actually did two handstands out on there. So in the 70s, it brought a lot of attention to Tallulah Gorge after that. Um, And at that time, it was uncontrolled. It was Georgia Power land that people could just pull off to the side of the road and walk down into the woods. So picture a twelve hundred foot canyon carved through rock or, or whatever was there, uh, twelve hundred feet deep, and uh, that's where that's where the this particular incident occurred. So um, since then, let mean the preface. Since then, it's become a, a partnership between Georgia Power and the state of Georgia. And in 1982, it became a state park where now you have to have a permit to hike down in there. And they've actually built stairs and trails and ramps. But people would always just hike down in there before. So this incident occurred before 1982. Uh, it was in the late 80s. I'm not exactly sure of uh, the time frame, that, that kind of escaped me. I do remember it being uh, one of those days that it was a nice, sunny, uh, early winter uh, day. So people were out doing things, etc. Uh, at the time, I was a member of a volunteer uh, fire department and a county uh, EMS service. And then, this being a rural, very rural county, it was like a all-call. When something major happened, people came. They threw down the department logos and titles, and everybody came together just to help. So uh, think back to the late 80s. This was before cell phones, and, and people would hike down in the gorge if someone fell or was injured then whoever was with them had to hike and crawl back up the 1,200-foot walls to get back up to the road and then find a pay phone and then remember how to get back in to where the victims were. So it was a very in-depth rescue every time we had to do that, and it took quite a while. There was one helicopter service at the time who had an old Vietnam veteran pilot who would fly down into the gorge. There was no place to land, but he would hold his uh, skid, one skid of the helicopter on a rock, called sliding rock, and we would load the patient into the helicopter while he was sitting there hovering and holding it. And then, of course, he had to go straight up. Then we would have to hike and backpack our equipment back out. But on this particular day, after it had been such a beautiful day all day, the weather began to turn kind of sour that afternoon and evening. Uh, I remember the call was early afternoon, uh, and it was paged out for a gorge rescue, and of course, tons of people showed up. This particular area, the um, person went in at the Wallenda Cable, that's what we called it, because it was an area that was kind of cleared out at, at the top, and people would come to see where Mr. Lalanda had walked across the gorge and then decide they wanted to walk and hike down in. So, this particular patient had gone down in the area of sliding rock, and uh, that if you've been around mountainous rocks, you know that the water going across them makes them very slip, slippery. And they had fallen and broken their leg and was unable to get themselves out. So the rescue was uh, going to take manpower to get the person out because the weather had turned bad and the helicopter couldn't fly down to take them out. So we packed up all we needed into a a Stokes basket, which is just a, if you don't know what it is, a basket that you put a patient in strap them or secure them in, and then you can carry them or repel up or down with them uh, to get uh, perform the rescue. So we uh, loaded up all the equipment that we thought we would need, ropes and carabiners, and uh, there was no formal team, so it was just whoever had the rope and, and experience, and began our hike down into the area of Sliding Rock, we did locate the patient. Uh, he did ha, had broken the tibia fibia of his leg. We were able to secure that, splint him, and then uh, load him up in the Stokes basket. And then at the time, we we knew it would be a long and tedious uh, extrication from the bottom of the gorge. So, a couple of places we have to. It's so steep. There's no way you can carry a Stokes basket, which takes four to six people, and walk like you would uh, normally. So we would have to set up a rigging pulley system. A couple of people would grab the Stokes basket. You'd hold on, kneeling down, hold on, push the person up as far as you could. Some of them would pull the rope and hold it while you scrambled up the side and uh, move the patient a little further. So it was very manpower intensive because you tire out really quickly doing that. And the significance of this particular rescue was it had been so pretty and nice during the day that a lot of people showed up in just normal clothes without winter-type gear. So. Uh, As as I mentioned, it takes a long time to perform that rescue. So nightfall began to fall and the temperature began to drop. And so we were dealing with uh, pretty harsh conditions. The head of uh, the emergency management for the particular area, uh, who was always involved and very uh, well trained in rescue, became hypothermic. And began to show signs of hypothermia, uh, just saying uh, unusual statements, uh, complaining of being very cold. So now on top of getting the broken leg injured patient out, we have another victim that we have to get out. People kept uh, on with the normal flows of getting that Stokes basket out while uh, other people began to bring some like thermos jugs of coffee and blankets and coats to try to warm up uh, our other uh, victim. Eventually, we were able to uh, get him warm enough that we felt comfortable that he could walk out with assistance. You know, we were still trudging up the, the side of the mountain with our Stokes basket. And now a second rescue party was bringing out our other victim. Uh, and it just brought to light that while some of us were actually sweating because of being labor intensive, some of the people were actually really, really cold uh, and turned out to be kind of a, a unique situation where we had, uh, when we had one other victim that uh, was a little bit hypothermic, but was on the ledge of the of the gorge and wasn't down in assisting with the rescue. So we wound up with three patients that day uh, based on a, uh, based on one call.
0: It sounds like it's uh, pretty unusual to, you know, go to a call for what sounds like a a run of the mill rescue, something you guys have done a number of times before and end up in this kind of situation with three unexpected patients and certainly the hypothermia aspect.
1: Well, you learn a lot. You learn that, Uh, you have to take that into consideration because, you know, the late 80s, we were not what I would call a professionally organized rescue team. We were just a bunch of guys, and there were some females, a bunch of guys and and ladies who were just trying our best to help someone in need. And we learned a good bit from that. Uh, Since then, there's a... Professionally organized and trained rescue team that um, consists of the area uh, fire and EMS personnel, and also now since it's a state park, there are some state uh, responders. We also have uh, more air support. So now, besides that, very uh, the only pilot that will fly down in the gorge, the um, Some of the state air assets have uh, committed to and actually performed rescues in the gorge. Um, There's been training now on uh, Highline so the helicopter doesn't have to go all the way down and hover with one skid on the rock to get low enough for for you to load. They actually come in with a, a long cable and you... the uh, rescued person in the Stokes basket dangles while the uh, helicopter takes them up to the rim of the gorge. So there's been a lot of improvements, and I, I attribute that back to that particular rescue where we were very fortunate that everyone came out uh, without any significant uh, additional injuries, uh, and no one was hurt in, in the the cold. Uh, And, you know, I attribute that back to now having a a good organized area where you have to have a permit to enter the area so they know who's there. And you also uh, have highly trained people who can rescue you. And they still have, you know, a few a year that they still have to rescue because if you, you know, if you fall down there, there's no way to get out on your own because it's so steep but there are steps now that make it easier. And then the, the additional air assets that can fly someone out.
0: Yeah. And I think we often underestimate the, uh, the power of the weather, if you will. You know, I remember, uh, I remember standing outside just a, you know, just a building fire in the middle of winter up in New York and, uh, icicles forming on the back of my, my hair and, you know, just freezing while we're out there working. So anytime you have to work in these kinds of conditions, it certainly makes the job a lot more difficult.
1: And, you know, we're in the South. We, uh, we think that we have the only significant weather, but, uh, you know, I I remember and I know from very cold weather having fires and you take your turnout gear off and you can almost stand it up because it's so frozen.
0: Yeah, and the days before um, having multiple sets of turnout gear, you know, you, you fight a fire, you sweat into it, and then two hours later while that gear is still wet, you go into another hot environment and you end up getting steam burns or, you know, being injured from your gear you know, because of the uh, the sweat that's in there, the, the perspiration that's in there. Exactly, that's a good point. So it makes uh, it makes doing a job that is difficult to begin with even that more difficult. Exactly.
1: I'd mentioned there were kind of two incidents tied together, so I want to segue to another one to that's kind of kind of humorous. But being involved in that rescue and being involved in uh, getting that head of our emergency management. Uh, assisting to get him out of that then you fast forward a couple of years and we had a very significant snowstorm uh, in the county that we all worked for and i was working uh, ems that day and we were called to a a call in the northern part of the county in a very remote rural area so we go uh, me and my partner and we're going up a dirt road and the snow is just piling up and it began to dam up in front of our truck and we were basically almost like a snowplow the front bumper of the truck and the grill were just pushing snow pushing snow pushing snow to the point that we stopped the the weight of the snow was more than uh, our normal tires could push and you know again back in the the late 80s this was before the automatic chains and, and before any of the equipment that people have now to get around. And again, being in a very rural part of the County that doesn't get a lot of snow, there was no equipment to clean the roads. So we went as far as we could go. And we were probably a half a mile from the patient up this very rural road. So we get on the radio and announce that we're stuck. And, um, my partner, who was the paramedic at the time, grabbed all the equipment he could carry, and he looked like a pack mule, and he started out on a hike to take care of the patient. While I stayed with the truck, I was able to back up, and I, a couple of times I would try to ram the snow to get it to break, thinking maybe I could uh, go further, but there was just no going further. Well, thinking back, I was able to help rescue the emergency management Director at the time. And lo and behold, he was the person that came to rescue me uh, on the side of the road. He had a four wheel drive, older army type ambulance, and he came up through there like it was nothing, was able to go around me, continue on up, and get the patient. And a wrecker helped me get turned around, and he was able to transport the patient and my paramedic back to me in the ambulance, and we were able to go back. So, you know, I guess it's uh, one helping the other. I, I was able to help rescue him, and he definitely rescued us later
0: on. Yeah, it sounds like it came full circle. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as, we're, as we're wrapping up here, is there anything else that, that you want to share about this call, about, about your career? Anything that you, you think our listeners uh, might be interested in?
1: Um, You know, I, I thought about how, what kind of a takeaway to try to get from this. And the thing I thought about was no matter where you are in your career, if you're at the top of the ladder as a chief or or wherever, or if you're a brand new rookie coming in that day, you're all sooner or later going to depend on one another. It's not just those people in your station or on your uh, apparatus that you're going to have to rely on. It's everybody, Uh, and that was the reason I kind of wanted to throw the second call in there is, you know, here I was, a relatively new uh, person into public safety that was having to help rescue one of the senior or or highest ranking people in the county. You just come full circle when uh, something like this happens. You you can't uh, think that just because he typically is an office person or, or he or she's typically an office person, or they may be in training or supply or something, but if they have that operational historical background, they may come to help you one day. So, you know, you, you have to rely on one another, not just on your rig, but, uh, throughout the, every station throughout the neighboring counties, neighboring departments.
0: Yeah. I think that's, uh, You know, 100 percent accurate. And and actually, it reminds me of a quote. Um, I've used this quote before, and I I think it really rings true, especially for those of us that have worked in the fire service. And it was a quote by Captain Pat Brown uh, of the FDNY. Um, And and the quote, When I'm going to paraphrase because I don't don't remember it uh, exactly. But he said, you know, when they need help, they call 911. And when we need help, all we have is each other. It's a brotherhood. And I think, based on what you've just just shared with us, uh, I think that really rings true. You know we depend on each other because we don't really have anybody else to to depend on it's 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 us
1: and i've I've used his quote before uh, at the ending of a leadership uh, class that I used to do, talking about leadership and helping one another and building that network of uh, friendships, no matter what throw the rank aside. Uh, it's a friendship and a brotherhood and a camaraderie together that we rely on one another. And I've used his quote that says we have to rely on one another because they dial nine one one and there's no nine one two for us.
0: Yeah, it's very very true. We're we're out there doing a very difficult job, and if we couldn't rely on each other, and and not just our our fellow firefighters, but you know folks that work in public safety, you know, a number of times we've had the police come to our rescue while we were. You know, running a fire call or running an EMS call and, and we rely on those guys just as much. Um, you know, I've had the unfortunate experience of getting hurt at a fire and relying on the medics who took care of me. So uh, you know, I'm sure you have stories along those lines as well, but we, we certainly do rely on each other and uh, I don't think the uniform or the badge really matters so much as the person that's wearing it.
1: Absolutely. Fire, EMS, EMA, law enforcement, the 911 dispatchers who watching over us. I mean, they're all integral parts of one another's uh, and that's the only way to have success.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Dispatches, I don't think we can say enough good stuff about dispatches and unfortunately they you know, they take the brunt of a lot of frustration sometimes, but they do one heck of a job. Absolutely. Well, Chief, I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. I, I just want to thank you again for uh, sharing this story, and I, and I hope our listeners uh, really uh, got out of the story what, what I got out of it when you started telling me some of the you know some of the, the details of it. So, uh, thank you for taking the time this morning, and I hope you'll come back and, and share some additional stories uh, with us uh, as you can.
1: Absolutely, I'd, I'd love to. You know, those are. Things are ingrained in your mind uh, after 37 or so years. Uh, Still involved in public safety, but more in a strictly administrative role now. So I don't run those calls, but try to make sure that folks that are running the calls have what they need to, to do that efficiently.
0: Thank you again for the work that you've done and the work that you'll continue to do. And thank you for being a guest on Stories from the Road. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.